Good morning, Alder Grove. Welcome to our Sunday service. What a great Sunday, isn't it? The weather is beautiful. The people are beautiful here. And if you're new here or new to Jesus today, we're so glad that you're here. And for those of you that this is not your first time, we're also welcoming you this morning. We're so privileged to worship God with you. As Matthew mentioned earlier, my name is Eric, and I'm the middle school director here here at North Lincoln Community Church, and I was asked by Pastor Kevin to step in and share a message with you, so I'm so excited. I'm super, super excited to meet you all, and I'm so stoked to see what God is about to do for us this morning. So first things first, the passage I want to share with you today is from Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. It's the second half of the uh, parable of the prodigal son. It's about the elder brother. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. So while you're turning there, when Pastor Kevin asked me to preach on this passage, I was so excited because you know what? It's about the elder son. I myself am an elder son, the older son of my family. Has any of you grown as the oldest child of your family? Yeah? You know, let me tell you some things about oldest children. People like us, we're responsible. We're smart. We're loyal. We always put the family first, right? We're awesome. We're awesome people. So when Kevin asked me to preach on the elder brother, I was like, yes, I got this. I'm going to talk about how amazing the elder brothers and sisters are. And I started reading the passage and studying what the scholars have to say. And guess what? They all say, the older son sucks. <laughs> okay, that's great. What an encouraging way to start. But as I kept reading and dipping myself into the word of God, I came to realize how much I'm like the elder brother of the story, how much I need God's grace. So this morning, I hope God would touch your hearts the same way he did to me. So here we go. Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look! These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and is alive he was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful Sunday. Thank you for these people, this place, this community to worship you together. And we invite you to this place. So God, may you just come, encounter us, teach us what the gospel is through this parable, and help us be able to submit ourselves to your will and to your design. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for those of you who are new to Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son is made up of two main parts. The first, first half is about the younger son, and the second half is about the elder son. The story begins this way. Verses 11 and 12 say, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, in the first century Jewish context, asking for the share of property from the father before he was dead was basically saying, saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. What a great son. So it was a serious ask to ask for the property from the father. But surprisingly, the father listens to his son and gives his share, the Bible says. So the younger son leaves to a far country, but then there he wastes all he has. He becomes miserable and then returns to the father. And the father, what the father does is so stunning because he welcomes the son. Now this is a beautiful picture, the gospel of God who accepts in sinners. I think the story would have been more beautiful if it ended here, but Jesus, as always, he does things that we don't like him to do. He refuses to do so. He refuses to finish his story there, and he moves on to the second half of the story, which shows us the reaction of the elder brother. When the younger son came back and the father threw a party for him, the Bible says the elder brother was in the field working hard for his father. As he came back to his place, he heard the party going on, so he asked his servant what was going on, and the servant answered, oh, your brother came back, so your father is celebrating it. Then, see how the elder brother responds. I'm sure it's on the slides. Verses 28 through 30, it says, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Here it's clear that the older son was enraged by how the father accepted his brother. So the story ends with him refusing to join the banquet. What a tragic way to end the story. Now to understand the story more fully, we need to see in which context Jesus gave this parable. Luke says at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here in these two verses, we have three characters that we see. Number one, the tax collectors and sinners. Number two, Jesus, who received and ate with the sinners. And number three, the Pharisees and the scribes who grumbled at what Jesus was doing. Now, I hope you see the connection between this context, this setting, and the parable of the prodigal son. Connections between the sinners that Jesus received and the younger son that the father received. The father who threw a party for his son and Jesus who was eating and celebrating with the sinners. The Pharisees and the scribes that grumbled at Jesus and the elder son who was angry at his father. It seems clear to me that Jesus is saying this parable as an illustration of what was actually happening between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the sinners. Simply put, through this story, Jesus is not just giving us a sentimental story that makes us get teared up. No. He's teaching something more than that. Something that specifically deals with the Pharisees. Then what is it? What is Jesus trying to teach here? Let's see verses 1 and 2 again. 
Luke says, now, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, before we dive into these verses, I want to lay my argument first. What Jesus is doing here in, in his parable is he is subverting the gospel of the Pharisees. He's overturning the gospel that the Pharisees believed, and he's presenting a new gospel, the gospel that didn't sound really good to them, the gospel that was dangerous to them. Let me explain, so let's get into it. Luke says Jesus was with the tax collectors and sinners, and this shows that the gospel that Jesus brought was about the kingdom where the tax collectors and sinners were all welcomed and included. That was the gospel that Jesus brought. But the Pharisees didn't really like this gospel. The gospel that was being presented by Jesus was not the gospel that they were really hoping for. That what was the gospel message to the Pharisees? What was the good news to them? If you see the verse again, it says Jesus was with the tax collectors and sinners. But what do the Pharisees call them? The verse says, this man receives and welcomes sinners. Notice that they don't say, this man receives tax collectors and sinners. They simply put them into one category, sinners. They considered tax collectors as sinners. And by the fact that they condemned the tax collectors as sinners, we can, though partially, reconstruct the image of the gospel that they had. Because think about it. On what ground can you connect tax collecting and sinning? I mean, we love to shop at duty-free stores, right? When I see tax-free stuff, I want to grab it no matter what, you know? People like it when they don't have to pay taxes. And I guess the Pharisees were like that too, right? But does that mean it's really fair to call tax collectors sinners? When CRA connects tax from me, do I go like, no, you're sinning, you can't do this to me. No, that's terrible. But look at the Pharisees. It seems like they had no problem of thinking tax collectors and sinners as synonymous, as same kind of people, which means in their mind, tax collecting was a sin. How was this possible? One of the scholars named Leon Morris writes this. He says, the tax collectors were not highly regarded in the first century, for they both helped the hated Romans in their administration of conquered territory and enriched themselves as the expense of their, at the expense of their fellow countrymen. In the first century, Israel was captured by the Roman Empire, which made them think of the Roman regime as their enemy. So they were actually waiting for God to come and save them from Rome. They were waiting for the Messiah, the Savior, to come and conquer the Roman emperor and set Israel free. This was how the gospel was commonly understood back then. God ending the captivity. This idea of the gospel developed throughout the Old Testament time. Because the Old Testament tells us that Israel kept breaking God's covenant, God's word, that they were exiled into Babylon. So they lost God's presence, his reign, and his covenant. That's what the exile entailed. Their relationship with God was just cut. So ever since this point, the Israelites began to hope for the end of the exile. 
they were waiting for the, the Messiah, the Savior to come, conquer Babylon, and bring Israel back to their country. That was the gospel to them, to the Israelites in the Old Testament times. And now centuries have passed, and Israel was no longer in the Babylonian exile, but they were still captured by the Roman Empire. So N.T. Wright says this, In Jesus' day, many, if not most, many Jews regarded the exile as still continuing. And this indicates that the first century Jews were still hoping for the Messiah to come end the exile and bring political liberty to Israel from the Roman Empire. That was how the gospel was understood commonly. Can I say it again? To the first century Jews, Jesus was not the gospel. The gospel was about the end of the exile, and it was supposed to result in political liberty. In their mind, when the Messiah restores Israel, only the righteous and holy Jews, like the Pharisees, could be considered as the true Israelites. When the Messiah comes, conquers the Roman emperor, sets Israel free politically, then only the righteous and holy Jews like the Pharisees could be considered as uh, Israeli citizens. That was how they believed. And in the middle of this belief, the tax collectors, instead of hoping and working for salvation of Israel, they were rather working and helping the Roman emperor. So to the Pharisees, the tax collectors were more than tax collectors. They were sinners who rejected God's salvation, who opposed the gospel. Are you with me? So the gospel that the Pharisees were waiting for was the restoration of Israel as the political kingdom, so they condemned the tax collectors and sinners because those kinds of people were not supposed to partake in the restoration of God. But Jesus... Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior, was eating with such people. And back then, eating with people meant high intimacy with such people. So what Jesus was actually doing was indicating that his gospel, his kingdom, was welcoming the sinners, was welcoming the tax collectors. So here we see two gospels colliding here. The gospel of the Pharisees and the gospel of Jesus. To the Pharisees, if Jesus is the true Messiah, if his gospel is the real gospel, that means their gospel is wrong. They are not the ones to be saved. It's the sinners who come to Jesus that are being saved. Then everything they believed about God, everything they believed about themselves becomes wrong, totally destroyed. So what Jesus was doing was threatening to the gospel of the Pharisees. That's why they grumbled at Jesus. They weren't just mad at him for no reason. His gospel was dangerous to them. It was threatening their hope, their identity, their faith, and everything. So I want to borrow from an author, John Drain, and say that the gospel of Jesus was a seriously dangerous gospel. Can I see it again? Jesus' gospel was a seriously dangerous gospel to the Pharisees then what does this really have to do with today's parable? 
On the surface, it seems like the parable of the prodigal son has nothing to do with the Pharisees' gospel or the return of the exile or all those kinds of Old Testament Israelite history, but it actually has everything to do with it. As Pastor Kevin already talked about it two weeks ago, the parable deals with the father who found his son back. But here's something very interesting. When the son returned from a distant country, this is what the father says, verse 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead but is alive. Here we see the resurrection language, right? The son was dead but is alive again, which means those who are represented by the younger son, which is basically the tax collectors and sinners, they were dead, but in and through Jesus, they're coming back to life. Resurrection is happening. Now, when we think of resurrection, the first thing that comes up, comes up in our mind is the resurrection of Jesus, right? But he didn't resurrect at this point yet when he was sharing this parable. So, to the first century Jews, as soon as they heard the word resurrection, it must have brought them to Ezekiel chapter 37, where it talks about God raising dry bones and breathing into it so it becomes a living flesh again. And it was a prophetic message to Israel that God would end the exile for them and bring Israel back to her original state when God was her king and she was her beloved child. That was the resurrection to the Israelites. So the resurrection didn't merely convey the physical resurrection, but it implied the restoration of Israel into the kingdom of God, into the relationship with God again. This is what resurrection meant to them. And now Jesus is saying that the younger sons are coming back to life, meaning that Jesus is inviting the tax collectors and sinners into his kingdom. The exile of sin is over for them. They are now back with God again. This resurrection is happening in and through Jesus' ministry. And what are the Pharisees doing in this ministry? They're opposing him, just like the elder brother. So N.T. Wright puts it this way. This is a long quote, but let me read it. Exile and restoration. This is the central drama that Israel believed herself to be acting out. And the story of the prodigal says, quite simply, this hope is now being fulfilled. But this is a highly subversive retelling. The real return from exile, including the real resurrection from the dead, is taking place in an extremely paradoxical fashion in Jesus' own ministry. And those who oppose it are the enemies of the true people of God. What anti Wright is basically saying is, in the gospel of Jesus, the Pharisees were acting like the enemies of God's people. They thought they were the ones who could partake the return of the exile. They thought they could enjoy Israel's political liberty. They thought they were the people of God. But everything they believed about their gospel, their God, and themselves was subverted by the gospel of Jesus. To them, Jesus 
was a seriously dangerous gospel. So I hope you can see the connection between today's parable and the gospel of the Pharisees. Today's story is not merely talking about some individual salvation. It's not teaching us how we can get saved. Maybe it's a part of it, but ultimately it's talking very specifically about what the true gospel is. The gospel that is dangerous. <laughs> the gospel that told the Pharisees that maybe they are not the people of God. Then I want us to think about ourselves for a moment. Here comes nasty parts. Okay, so bear with me, please. As I was preparing this passage, this nasty part was really challenging to me personally. It really convicted me that I came to humble myself, uh, return to God, and just pray, pray, pray before Him. So I hope that God does the same to all of us this morning. And here it is. Maybe we're like the Pharisees. Maybe many of us here identify with the elder brother. Think about the elder brother. The Bible says when his brother came back, he was working in the field. Come on, he's so faithful, isn't he? He's so loyal to his father, he's super devout. And the same applies to the Pharisees, actually. They're super holy, trying to keep every word of the law of God. So honestly, they are super Christians. They were doing right things. But in the end, we see them standing in danger. Danger of missing out the Father's banquet. Danger of losing the gospel of Jesus. Why? This all began from having the wrong gospel. I said to the Pharisees, the gospel was about the restoration of the political kingdom of Israel where only holy, righteous Jews could enter. Likewise, to the elder brother, the gospel was about getting all the father's properties, which only the obedient son could receive. Both the Pharisees and the elder brother believed that the gospel was not the father himself, but things that they could get from the father. They both believed that the gospel could be fulfilled by their good works. And this wrong gospel made them look holier and more faithful than anyone on this earth, and, but still miss out the true blessings. And I'm saying, maybe, maybe this is where we are. Many of us, we come to church regularly. I'm sure some of us read the Bible. We pray daily. We serve in many different areas in this church. We know exactly what to do to make ourselves look like good Christians. And we do them which is good, at which eventually makes us believe, oh, I'm such a good Christian. I'm definitely saved. I'm a son of God. I'm a da daughter of God. I'm children of God. Yes, amen to that. Praise God may be true. But the Bible says, maybe test your heart. See if you have the true gospel in you. Maybe, maybe you're in danger. So I'm going to ask you this morning, what is the gospel to you? What kind of gospel do you hold? The gospel of Jesus or the gospel of me? Many times in our lifestyle, for me at least, 
it's not that hard to realize that Jesus is not being the good news. Sometimes we find ourselves worshiping other things as our good news. It could be money, it could be health, it could be the well-being of our children. Those are all important, but I don't think they could be the ultimate gospel to us. As the middle school director, I keep noticing that to many young people, the gospel is about getting straight A's, getting many likes on their TikTok videos, breaking the best record on their video games. That's great. There are lots of gospels and good news in this world, but where is Jesus in all this? One day I was going through a really, really hard time. A really hard time. I lost relationships. I lost health. lost lots of things. So I complained to God, God, how could you do this to me? I've served you for so long and this is what I get in return? You gotta be kidding me, God. And at that moment, I felt God speaking into my heart. Eric, am I not enough for you? I want us to ask ourselves the same question. Is God really enough for you, or is he not? We read the Bible, we pray, we worship, we do lots of religious stuff, or what? Maybe for, maybe for achieving my own gospel, whether that's money, well-being, health, success, and so on. And when God doesn't fulfill this gospel for us, maybe we grumble like the elder brother. Maybe that's a sign that we don't want God as who he is, but we want God to be who we want him to be. Can I say that again? Maybe, maybe we don't want God as who he is, but we want God to be who we want him to be. That's why the Pharisees rejected Jesus. The Messiah that they wanted was someone who would only welcome the holy, righteous people they wanted the Messiah who would bring the political liberty to Israel. But Jesus was not the kind of Messiah, so they rejected him. Oh, you can't be the Messiah then. What about the elder brother? The father he wanted was a father who would approve only by the works that his sons do. The father who would condemn the younger son. That's the kind of father that the elder brother wanted. But his father was not the kind of father. That's why he refused to join the banquet. To the Pharisees, who Jesus was, was not the kind of God that they wanted. To the elder brother, who the father was, was not the kind of father he wanted. And I'm saying maybe to us, maybe who God is, is not, the kind of what, is, is not the kind of God we want. Maybe we want the God who is easily bribed by our religious behavior. The God who takes more pleasure in what we do than who we are. The God whom we can manipulate by our works. Back when I was in high school, like, I think I was 16 years old back then. There was this guy that I uh, considered as my friend back then. He was a really funny guy, so I liked hanging out with him. We were pretty close, but one day he said to me, Hey, Eric, I got a good thing for you. I got a good thing for you. Let's go to somewhere that no one can see us. So I was like, okay. 
Let's see what it is. So I followed him, and he pulled out something from his pocket. It was a cigarette. He was like, here, Eric, have you tried smoking? I said, no, I haven't. I mean, we're 16. It's illegal, right? Then he offered me one saying, come on, Eric, it's okay. Try it. It'll make you feel better. But I refused. Then he got mad at me. Now that I'm thinking back this story, the reason why he got mad at me wasn't just because I didn't do what he told me to do. I think it was because the Eric that he wanted was not who I was. You know what I mean? The Eric he wanted was someone who would easily break the law to have some fun with his friends. But that wasn't who I was. So he got frustrated because of that. Just as the Jesus that the Pharisees wanted was not who a real Jesus was. The father the elder son wanted was not who the real father was. And maybe we're like them too. Maybe the wrong gospel that we have is about the wrong God we made in our own mind to easily manipulate him by our good works so he gratifies whatever good things we want. Can I say that again? I'm saying lots of things again and again today, but please bear with me. Maybe the wrong gospel that we have is about the wrong God that we created in our our own mind who can be manipulated by our works so he gratifies good things that we want. So to all the elder brothers in this room, I want to ask this question. Is God of the Bible the God you want? Or do you have a different God, a different gospel that you wish to hold? Brent Pitria once said this, you can serve someone and obey them and not love them. Could it be? Could it be that this is where we are right now? The world we're living in is characterized by pragmatism. I need some help from Merriam-Webster. It says, pragmatism is a philosophical idea that says the meaning of conceptions is to be sought in their practical bearings. Simply put, your value is determined by what you do. This is the world we're living in. And people began to bring this idea to the church and syncretize it, mix it with Christian faith, and create this new religion which I like to call pragmatic Christianity. Pragmatic Christianity is that my Christian value, my value as a Christian is determined by how religious I look. And the more religious I become, the more God is pleased in me. The more God is pleased in me, the more he gratifies my gospels. This was what the elder brother was like. He worked super hard for the father so that he gets more favor from him. The Pharisees maintained a very, very holy lifestyle so that God would give political liberties to such righteous people like them. Many Christians today live so religiously that God would give them more approval, more favor. The God who is manipulated by good works. The gospel that is not about God himself, but about things that we can get from him. Sadly, this is where many Christians are at today. 
And J. Alec Matir says that this is exactly how the idolaters believed in the Old Testament time. They believed once they give their gods offerings and please them, the gods would give them favor in return. That's how the Pharisees and the elder brother believed. And maybe, maybe that's how we're believing. Maybe that's how I'm believing. So I want to make a heavy claim this morning that we might not like to hear. That maybe many Christians today, including myself, maybe we're committing idolatry instead of committing ourselves to the gospel. And I'm being honest with you. I'm one of them. And I'm inviting you this morning to test your heart to see if you're also one of them. I know it's a dangerous invitation, but I think it's good dangerous because this is exactly the invitation that Jesus was giving to the Pharisees to receive the seriously dangerous gospel of Jesus that could break down their false gospel. And we're being invited the same to receive a seriously dangerous gospel that could break down the false image of God we might have created for ourselves. The gospel that maybe is saying that we might have been worshiping ourselves, not God. Why don't we accept his invitation in humility? Because this dangerous invitation was given to us by Jesus putting himself into a great danger, greater danger. See verse 28, it says, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. As we're getting into this verse, I want to ask the worship band to come up and, um, yeah. So this verse, it says, when the elder brother grumbles at his father, the father, we can see that the father is actually listening to his son. He doesn't scold He doesn't reject his son, but he simply listens. And he cares about the son's feelings. And the Bible says the father came out to entreat. Here the Greek word for entreat is parakaleo. Parakaleo in Greek means to ask for earnestly, to beg, to plead. The father left where he was to search for the son, And when he found him, he begged him. Can you imagine the father begging his son? He begged him saying, where have you been, my son? Now that I found you, let's go back to where you belong. And as I already mentioned, this is the picture of what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. He's begging them. He's pleading with them to lay down their false gospel and join his kingdom banquet. Now, this imagery actually reminds me of what God did when he lost the first humans in the garden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in Genesis 3, they hid themselves from God among the trees of the garden, and they refused to come out to God just like the elder son. And what does God do? He does exactly what the Father does in the parable. Genesis 3 verse 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God left his place, came to where Adam and Eve were, and he pleaded with them, where are you? 
Adam. Where are you, Eve? Come to me. Let me fix this. That's what, what God was doing when he lost the first humans in history. And thousands of years later, when the Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners, and the entire humanity left God, just like Adam and Eve, God did the same thing. Like the father in the story left his place to find his older son, God also left his place. He abandoned his heavenly throne. Without hesitating, not even for a second, he chose to come out from where he was. He abandoned his throne, his home, and he walked into this world, choosing the small, stinking manger as his home. God became a human to search for sinners, and he pleaded with us, come to me. Let me give you a new life. And as the climax of his pleading, he died on the cross. Like the father taking the burden from the elder son's shoulders, Jesus took the burden of sin from us and put it upon himself. So let me tell you, to him, to Jesus, inviting us to lay down our false gospel and embrace his gospel was not an easy thing. It was super dangerous to him which eventually made him cost his own life in order to invite us. This is the God we see in today's parable. This is the God we have. The God who left his place to come to the garden. The father who left his banquet and all the joys he was having, he left all that to come and find the son. The king who left his throne to die for you and me. This is our God. And he's still pleading with us this morning. Because what kind of God would put himself into the danger to save us? So I want to encourage you. Whatever gospels we have, whatever images of God we made in our own mind, that ain't better than this God. Whatever is being the good news to us, however we expect our God to be, that ain't better than this God on the cross. He is the true gospel. Nothing in this world, no one in this world can compare to this God. So North Langley, this morning, I want to invite you to this beautiful, beautiful danger. The danger of losing the God we made for ourselves danger of losing our own gospel the good danger that comes from the gospel of jesus so why don't we invite his gospel to come and show us that nothing in this world can be our good news no one in this world deserves to be our good news or gospel nothing in this world can save us we our good works can do nothing for our salvation that we are helpless sinners, but at the same time, blessed sinners who can't do anything about our sins. But listen, He is the kind of God who doesn't save us by our works, but by His own grace. That I'm sure His grace will lead us into living out the image of Christ out of love and gratitude for Him. Let me pray. 
As we're praying, I just want to let you know that we have the prayer team here this morning to pray for you. Anyone who's having the burden, anyone who's been struggling for whatever reasons, just come out. The prayer team will be here for you at the front of the stage and also in the prayer room at the back. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning. Thank you for who you are, God. Because you, God, you are so beautiful. You are so good. Nothing in this world can compare to you, God. But Lord, because we are weak, sometimes we act like Adam and Eve. Sometimes we act like the elder brother, the Pharisees, looking for other things as our gospel, looking for other gods to be our God. But Lord, this morning, we invite your dangerous gospel into our lives. We want to fall into that danger because we know that your danger will secure us forever, eternally. So God, we dip ourselves into your presence, into your gospel. May you just come, cleanse us, heal us from everything that we've been holding as our gospel, as our good news, and lead us into who you are, to fall in love with who you are, Jesus, and to follow who you are so that we might be able to bear the image of who you are, Jesus, because who you are is the gospel to us. I want to bless this community, this church, throughout this next coming week. Help us be able to always remember the gospel of Jesus, the one who receives us as who we are by your grace, the one who is king who left his throne to save us and help us be able to always just be glad for who you are alone. We thank you. We love you in your name.